Welcome back to Resilient AF. I'm your host, Austin. So before we get into the episode, I kind of wanted to preface it with this. This is a 40 or so minute episode. And the reason why is in the process of post-production, I couldn't really bring myself to cut anything out. There was nothing really that stood out as like, oh, well, this isn't really needed or this doesn't add value. So much of this interview is impactful. So I hope that it impacts you and makes you better for experiences that you've already faced or maybe things that you'll face in the future. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thanks for listening. All right, Nadia. So um, first and foremost, I just want to say thank you for being on the show. I uh, really appreciate your time and you sharing your story with us. Can you kind of just go ahead and give our listeners a rundown of you know who you are, um, where you're stationed in your career? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Nadia Maya. I'm currently stationed in Okinawa uh, at Kadena Air Base. And I um, currently work at the fitness center over here for the 718th Force Support Squadron. So I'm a master sergeant, um, been in for, I just hit 14 years, and it's been a wild and crazy ride. All right. So, well, I guess um, let's get started. So Nadia, what's your story? So back in um, February of 2008, I was uh, Airman Amaya and young and dumb, and I received an Article 15 back then. And um, really, honestly, I think that the Article 15 was just a start of a, I'm going to call it a, a learning a learning process for me. I ran into some financial troubles because I had lost some stripes and had to pay some fines and, and all that good stuff. And then with those financial troubles came family problems. I was a single mother at that time to a beautiful little boy, and uh, I couldn't take care of him financially and all that. So that caused a lot of problems with him and with my parents and, and his father and all that. And then, of course, after getting an Article 15, I kind of just became like the black sheep of the work section and the squadron. So, of course, I had work problems. And so all of those put together kind of just caused a strain in my life that was um, a little hard to recover from, you know, after that. Luckily, you know, after that, I'm going to say luckily, in May of 2008, a couple months later, I actually ended up deploying. And on that deployment, I was able to recover financially, uh, saved all my money, paid off any debt that I had that I had been, you know, spending my credit cards on to kind of survive and all that stuff like that and take care of my child. But of course, deployment, you know, the first time being away from my son, he's only, you know, four years old, that was really rough. So although I was able to financially recover, just the separation from my son and my family made me, you know, anxious, depressed and things like that. And of course, also when it came to work, I was deployed as a one striper. And uh, that was tough because people look at you when you're a one striper and they automatically assume that you don't know anything. So I was in the desert and I always used to get, mm, can I get somebody who knows what they're talking about, even though I had been in for a couple of years and I knew what I was talking about. So that was a pretty tough deployment for me. I was able to come back. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, like I said, getting that article 15, it kind of just surrounded my life all the time. People knew that I had been in trouble. When new airmen would come into the squadron, they would say, oh, don't hang out with Airman Amaya, you know, cause she's trouble. She got an article 15. 
and things like that. So I started drinking uh, every day, every single day, just to kind of, I guess, escape from everything, from the reality, from the depression, from the loneliness, things like that. I drank out of boredom. I drank out of loneliness. I drank out of stress. Um, you know, and then after that, it just became so normal that if something good happened, I would drink to celebrate. If something bad happened, I would drink because I was sad, things like that. And so I was drinking every single day after that just to kind of cope with everything. Uh, well, fast forward December 2009, I actually deployed again. And, um, you know, that was still hard. I was uh, just being away from my son and having to send my son back to my mom uh, every time you know, was, was tough on me. Uh, I did have a better professional environment while I was out there. So that wasn't too bad, but just personally, I was, it was hard for me to cope with, with that, with being alone. And a lot of people, you know, back then would tell me like, Oh, well, Hey, you chose this. Hey, you know, you signed up for this. Hey, this is what you, you wanted to do. And yeah, I did. Absolutely. I volunteered to join the military and obviously had my son because I wanted him. Um, but it didn't change how I felt and it didn't change like the sadness and the loneliness and like what I was feeling that I was doing to him, the sacrifices that I was making. And so when I got back from this deployment, um, I continued to drink. I never really recovered from that cycle that I had been going on, never really recovered from that sadness. Finally, in October of 2010, I deployed, I'm sorry, I PCS'd. And so I PCS out of there for my to my second duty station. In September of 2011, I actually got married. And then in May of 2012, I actually gave birth to my second son. And so things were, were looking better. But honestly, I was still drinking every single day. I was still, you know, going to the e-club after work every day and drinking, sometimes taking a cab home, sometimes getting a ride home from other people. Uh, and then coming home and just being absent, being an absent wife, being an absent mother um, to my children and things like that. And so around, um, I'm sorry, in May of 2014, I actually ended up falling into that force reduction that the Air Force did. And I had to go up to a board uh, because of my Article 15. So here we are, what, you know, six, six years later. And the Article 15 came back and I had to, um, you know, do what they called back then a riff and explain to the Air Force once again why it was that I had to stay in here after I had received an Article 15. So that time honestly caused even more stress. Just professionally, I was stressing out of the chances of getting kicked out after all the hard work that I had been doing for those years and things like that. We started saving up our money just in case we, you know, I did get kicked out. And so that started causing another financial strain and then a strain in our relationship, you know, in my marriage. And then, of course, just professionally. Um, and then, of course, I continued to drink like that was just always the answer to everything for me, no matter how much financial issues I was having, no matter what, I always unfortunately had money to drink. And just that was just always the answer to everything for me. The more I drank, the more that I thought I was going to be able to forget all my problems and all my issues. And of course, not thinking of anything that was going on at that time. 
uh, towards the end of 2016, my marriage started falling apart. And for those of us who that's happened to, we all know what that does to us. It, you know, and it's just, again, personally, I was a mess, um, financially a mess and everything like that. And, and again, right. The only way I knew how to cope with that was by drinking all the time. Uh, March, 2017, I PCS out to Korea and I was out there for a remote tour. And, um, I don't know if I can say that that was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me or even the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. But that was probably one of my lowest times in my career. I was a, I had just pinned on tech sergeant. I was a young tech sergeant. And um, it was the first time that I had ever really ever been away from my kids, especially my oldest son who had been with me. It was the first time that really like other than my deployments, which you don't really live in your deployments, right? You're just kind of you, in a tent, you do whatever. This was it. Like I had to make a home for myself in Korea. And that was tough. That was hard. I had never, I had such a hard adjustment, like, you know, adjusting to that and just being away from them. And then the time difference. And I don't know. And it just seemed like this assignment was just probably the hardest for me when it came to that. And of course, what did I do in Korea when I was, you know, out there by myself, had no responsibilities. I drank all day, every day. Um, honestly, it was it was nuts. I unfortunately, um, I ended up being one of those people that instead of taking that year to better myself and go to school and do what I needed to do, I became one of those people that all I did was drink. And I look back now and I'm like, geez, why? Why did I do that? Finally, I PCS in June of 2018 here to Okinawa, and um, that's really when my life started changing. Uh, Again, my marriage had fallen apart. We, you know, we were no longer together. My kids um, were now having to choose between living in, in two different homes, you know, with their father or with me. And my kids chose to live with their dad, um, especially my oldest. Uh, my oldest was 14 back then. And, uh, you know, he was with me. He is not my ex-husband's son, but still wanted to live with him. And... I didn't really know how to take that. I was really just, I, I honestly just didn't know how to take that. And so of course I continued my life of drinking once I got here. And that was again, just a way of coping with things. So I would get the kids on the weekends and, um, you know, do the best that I could with them. But honestly, it wasn't much because I was drunk all the time. Finally, I uh, did January of 2019, I hit the new year, new me. And so what I ended up doing was I actually, that's when I chose to um, start going to counseling and, and seek help. And of course there's, you know, there's stuff in the back, in the back that happened to that, but that was the, the time that I decided to say, Hey, new year, new me, January of 2019, we're going to go ahead and we're going to do this. And I, first I started trying by going to the MFLAC. And I think I went to one or two sessions and it, it just didn't work for me. It didn't do it for me. I left and I was like, yeah, this is whack. Like, you know, everything that everybody says about mental health, this didn't work. And I'm going to complain and, and everything. And, and every, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't the MFLAC. It was me. I was not ready to seek that help. And so I went back and continued the self-destruction that I was doing, you know, drinking and just being alone and just doing dumb stuff. 
And then in February of 2019, I actually tested for, at the end, uh, February 28th of 2019, I actually tested for master. And um, in those months to, you know, in those months after I tested for master, I started realizing everybody was like, oh, you're going to make it, you're going to do this, you know, now you're master Tarnamaya. And the way that people started talking to me and the way that my section, you know, um, I don't really want to say looked up to me, but maybe kind of like they depended on me, you know, now I realize like, Hey, this is much more bigger than me in the air force. And, um, my drinking had got so bad though, that I was literally drinking so much at night that I couldn't drive to work in the mornings. And so I was spending money on cabs to pick me up from work in the morning and then bring me, you know, to, I'm sorry for picking me up from home to bringing me to work and things like that. And so that was causing a financial strain for no reason, um, you know, to me and things like that. And then personally, obviously I had, you know, one failed relationship after another, one failed relationship after another. I just, I, I just couldn't do it. So I was alone. I was uh, hiding my pain. I was silencing my pain with drinking. That's really what I was doing. I didn't know any better. It had been years. It's all I knew how to do. But when I started realizing that other people were depending on me, that's really when I was like, man, I, I, I need to go back. I need to go back and I need to get help. I was not ready to get help for my drinking. And so I decided to go to mental health and I decided to go to therapy um, because I thought that that's what I needed. I needed to figure out what was wrong. I needed to figure out what was causing these issues. And then really I would, you know, magically stop drinking, I guess is what would, what happened there. Um, so I started going into therapy. I went into mental health. I had an amazing therapist. She was great. She was patient. And after a couple of months, um, I actually found out that I made master, which was super exciting and super dope. I found out in May. And then, um, of course, we went out. We celebrated, right? Because that's what we do. We celebrated after we we uh, made it. And still, there was something missing. There was I was still drinking every single day. And I'll tell you, um, one day it had gotten so bad that I was about to go to the shop at during work to drink during work. And I ended up getting busy. I had a coworker who kind of knew what was going on in my life, but not really because I was really, really closed off to the people at work. And um, he ended up keeping me from going to the shop at and he was like, hey, you know, you're busy. Let's go. We got something to do. So I ended up not going to the shop at that day to get uh, alcohol and driving out, driving home that day, there was a sobriety checkpoint on the way out of the gate. Um, and I had to blow into a breathalyzer. And at that moment, I realized, holy crap, you know, um, if I would have drank, I would have lost every single thing that I've ever worked for. And that night I went home and I had to, I had my last drink. Um, well, not my last drink, but I had my drink and I went back. And the next day I told my therapist that I wanted to go to ADAP and I self-referred into ADAP. And so now I'm about 10 months sober, um, going on 11 months this month, actually, at the end of this month. And um, yeah, I haven't looked back. I was able to walk into ADAP and I was able to do the classes and I was able to do what I needed to do to get better and then continue my therapy as well to get better. And I'll tell you this, it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do um, just because... I think we all know what that stigma is. 
And I was afraid, right? What are people going to think of Master Sergeant Amaya? Um, what are people going to think? Uh, what will my leadership think, right? Will they be able to trust me if I'm going through mental health and seeking counseling, if I'm a drunk and all these things? But I will tell you, um, the people who needed to know about it knew about it. And um, nothing's changed. It's actually been better for me. I've actually had people tell me how proud of me they are um, and how glad they are that I sought help and the difference that they see in me before and now, even though a lot of people really didn't know what I was going through, they had seen the difference in me. But everybody says it, right? Everybody, nothing but positive things walking um, in and out of mental health. And then on top of that, I've had airmen that have come up to me and been like, hey, Sarnamaya, you know, when you went to mental health, what was this like? What was this like? And I've been able to actually give them that firsthand account of, hey, get help. It works. And take people there and drive them. And then when I tell people like, hey, seek counseling, go to mental health, you know, they don't think that I'm out here just BSing them. They realize that I mean it. And I, you know, and it's something that, I've used the avenue that I've taken and things like that. So it's just, it's been a crazy bumpy ride. So, wow. Um, your story definitely holds weight. Um, so some questions for you early on, you spoke about how it was really difficult to kind of fight that black sheep stigma. So for you, what did you do to try and stop that Article 15 from defining you as an airman? So honestly, at first, um, I fell into that trap. I fell into the, you know, woe is me trap and, and things like that. But luckily, I, I had people around me, and I might have not seen it like at that time, but I had people around me that were able to help me out. And before resiliency was resili resiliency in the Air Force, I had people tell me that like, hey, you have to bounce back. It's about the way you come back. It's about how hard you work after this. Don't fuel the fire to let people, you know, keep saying, oh, you see that she is a dirtbag or you see that, you know, she doesn't know what she's doing or whatever the case may be. And so that was really what I did after just, I guess a couple, you know, I'm going to say a couple months of just, being sad and, and, you know, running around work like, oh yeah, whatever, you know, I have an article 15 and this is how it retreats me. I really decided to, to listen to those people. Um, I had a chief who would pull me in his office all the time and, and tell me, you know, like, Hey, you're much better than this. And, you know, think about why you joined the air force. Think about, you know, your child and things like that. And so I kind of just took it in just one day at a time. I worked hard, everything that I can possibly do when it came to knowing my job, my CDCs, volunteering, whatever was important to my leadership back then and my managers, um, I made it a point to to do those things for them and to learn and become that expert on my job and everything that I needed to do. And so eventually after a while, um, I think, you know, after my deployment and things like that, it, it took some time. People were able to be like, okay, she might've gotten an article 15. She messed up, whatever the case may be, but she knows her job. And so I, that was really the biggest thing. I just was like, all right, I'm going to make sure that they know that I am a, you know, an expert at my job. And that's all that I need people to think about. And so that was, that was that I just kind of, you know, dove into the work aspect of that to kind of clear that. But again, it took maybe about a year for people to even forget that I had gotten an article 15 and to stop talking about it before they can honestly be like, Oh, okay. She knows her stuff. So. Wow. So you, you kind of hit on something earlier. You said that you weren't the wife 
and the mother that you should have been. And I think that it's really important to note the way that you described that and the way that you took ownership of that. And so my next question is, what was that journey of realization like for you to be able to not blame other people, not say that, you know, divorce happens or whatnot, but what was it? What journey did you have to take to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, I wasn't who I needed to be at that time? It was a, a very lo lonely journey. <laughs> but honestly, um, you know, at that time, when it was happening, I, unfortunately for my, my oldest son, I didn't really see it until just recently. Um, and honestly, I, I didn't see it until he brought it up. And so a couple of weeks ago, we actually had this conversation with him where he told me uh, that he was glad that I quit drinking because he realized that I had way more energy to do things with them and that he actually wanted to be around me because I wasn't in a bad mood. And we got up in the morning and I would cook breakfast on the weekends and things like that. And that might seem so simple to other people, but to me, that was heartbreaking. And that was the moment that I realized really, you know, that today now I can tell you that I was an absent mother, which is insane, right? Because I actually lived through it for years, but never really realized it. As far as absent wife, um, it took me to the point where I had thought I had gotten better by going to therapy and then asking my ex-husband if he wanted to work things out. and. I, I really, really thought he was going to say yes. And I really, really thought he was going to be there. And he was like, no, everything that I had put him through. And he sat down and explained it to me, what I had you know, put him through and what I had done and all that. And that was the moment I realized. And so it wasn't easy. And it wasn't like a journey that I took on my, you know, by myself to be like, oh, wow, I was a bad mother. I was a bad wife. It was something that I had to, I, I got the, criticism from two other people to tell me what how I had failed and the moment that they told me of course just like you said I was like no way that wasn't me that wasn't my fault or the moment that they told me that but then now looking back honestly um I can I can agree with them and say that to you here like yeah I was absent I wasn't there because of all the things that I had been doing and stuff like that but it wasn't something that I realized at that moment people kept telling me, people kept saying like, Hey, this is what you're doing. You know, you're messing it up. And I, I didn't believe it until now, looking back until now that I, I can see things clearly. So on, it wasn't like a journey that I took, you know, it just was like, I've gotten to the place now in my life where I can actually receive that criticism and I can actually receive that feedback. Um, and when somebody tells me something negative about myself, I'm actually able to take it in and actually be like, Oh yeah, that's, that is true. And, you know, I, I obviously couldn't have done that a couple years ago. So you spoke about how um, after your divorce, your oldest son told you that he wanted to live with your ex-husband, who was not his biological father. So how did that affect you? Um, so honestly, I've always said that my oldest son is my ride or die. You know, he's been with me uh pretty much my entire career. And um, that really hurt. That was one of those moments that I can honestly think back to and remember um, the feeling and remember what it was that I was like thinking. And I think that at that moment, I was like, wow, I've ruined this kid. You know, um, he preferred to, to go with somebody who 
luckily was an amazing father to him. Luckily was an amazing person to me and to him and saw the good in, in him and everything. But it really hurt. It really made me realize how selfish and um, how just, you know, I, I don't, I can't even think of another word other than just selfish, how selfish I really was with my time and with myself because, you know, he didn't, he can't just up and leave, you know, he has to, he has to live here. And then the first opportunity that he was able to get to up and leave, he actually did up and leave. And so, like I said, that just made me realize that just selfish I was and um, super sad, but we're better now. I'll tell you that he lives here with me now. <laughs> so we're better now. Well, I'm, I'm definitely glad to hear that. Um, so in our pre-interview, you said something that kind of struck me. You uh, talked about the difference between Nadia and Sergeant Amaya. So can you, for our audience, kind of break down what during that time in your life, what those differences were? So, <laughs> so Nadia is a uh, party animal who doesn't take anything serious. Uh, all I like to do is have fun. That's what all that Nadia likes to do. And then Sergeant Amaya would go to work um, and she was very serious. She put up with no BS and pretty much, you know, you ever had, this is what I hear my airmen say to me that they think of me when they first meet me. You ever had that supervisor, <clears throat> excuse me, you ever had that supervisor that you just don't want to talk to because she always looks mad and you'd never want to ask her for anything because every time that you ask her for something, she's going to say no just because. So that's the kind of supervisor that people thought that I was. I was, you know, total hard ass, super serious all the time. And so when people would find out that I would like to have fun outside of work, um, it would blow their mind. But that distinction was purposeful for me. It, there was a purpose behind that was because Nadia was that party animal and I was out drinking and out doing dumb things that, you know, I wasn't living up to my core values, like honestly, but Sergeant Amaya came to work and did live out those core values, right? Just from in those nine to five hours or whatever hours I was working. And then I expected my airmen to live those core values as well. So very hypocritical, but in my mind, I had made that very clear distinction of whatever work is, you know, work. And then my personal life isn't going to affect work. And that meant for like, anytime that I was like depressed or anxious and things like that, I would make sure that I got to work. And again, I was hiding that, you know, hiding that pain and drinking that pain away and just keeping that silence. I didn't understand what the correlation between my personal life and my professional life was back then. Um, and so that was a distinction. I made that purpose, like on purpose, like I said, which was a terrible, terrible idea, by the way, it doesn't work. I realize that now that your personal life and your professional life, they mix. And if you're having a bad time in your per, you know, personal life, it's going to interfere with work. And it was exhausting to, to keep that distinction. It was, it was really tiring to make sure that I put on this facade as I walked into work and acted like everything was perfect. And, you know, that was the, the impression that I wanted to give everybody that Sergeant Amaya was, you know, perfect. And there was no problems in my life and, and I had nothing going on. And then, of course, on the other end, Nadia was uh, struggling, like I said, just every day. Um, but I, I, I wanted to keep those very separately. So you said that Nadia loved to have fun. So in your road to sobriety, how have you redefined 
what having fun looks like? So I will tell you this. Um, I am the same exact person. I just do it now without alcohol, which sounds crazy, right? But I think that that's the beauty of going sober. You realize that life doesn't have to change. And so I still go out with my friends if I want to. Um, I still dance and sing around like a crazy person in my house. I still, um, you know, stay up late. Whatever it was that I was doing before, I just now do it sober. Um, I'm the type of person who doesn't get embarrassed easily. So if I go out and I want to make a total fool out of myself, I can do that while I'm sober. I don't get embarrassed easily either. And so again, right, I could just have fun while my friends are doing whatever it is that they're doing. Um, I'm doing the same exact thing, but sober. And I had to get comfortable in my own skin to be able to do that. And that was one of the things that I was able to learn, you know, through ADAP and through, uh, you know, therapy and all that, that it is about being comfortable in your own skin and being able to enjoy yourself without it. And so again, right, that's, that is something that has taken some time. The first couple months that I was you know, going sober and quit drinking, um, I didn't go out and I didn't have fun because I didn't think that my friends wanted to invite me out and I didn't think that anybody wanted to hang out with me. But eventually they continued to be like, hey, let's go out and do stuff. Let's go out. And they continued to invite me out and continued to want to hang out with me. And then I realized like, oh, I can do this. This is easy. So it was just that, just really getting comfortable in your own skin. Okay. So you um, spoke about how when you were being stationed in Okinawa, how you were breathalyzed on your way out. So just for our listeners who have never been stationed there or overseas in general, what are the common practices when it comes to alcohol and driving um, overseas or I guess more specifically in Okinawa? Yeah. So here in, in, in Okinawa, we have the campaign is uh, not one drop. And so you're not allowed to drink at all and get behind the wheel. Um, there's not like, let's have a beer and then drive home. None of that. That's not a thing here. And so really uh, what they do is they will actually breathalyze you at random corners of base and actually even out in the city, out in, you know, random corners of the city at random times of the day. So you'll have security forces standing in front of the DFAC and breathalyzing people at 7.45 a.m. Or you'll have people standing at a random corner to turn into the shop at, at you know, lunchtime and they breathalyze you and things like that. And so... Um, that's one of those things here. It's an, you know, an automatic 15, you know, up to your leadership, what they want to do with you, but it is an automatic article 15 and then an automatic driving, um, privileges lost on and off base. And so as you can, you know, you can think about it. I live off base. I lived at that time, probably like 20 minutes from base. If I didn't have a car or I couldn't drive, how am I going to get to my kids to school? How am I going to get to work? Like that's an inconvenience for, you know, your coworkers and for yourself. And then obviously financially that would have been terrible because you have to take taxis everywhere or whatever the case may be because you can't drive or you buy a bicycle and you bike to and from work every day and so that was one of those things where luckily for me that day they were breathalyzing at 2 30 in the afternoon right because either way on that day whether I had been drinking or not my life would have changed so wow that's a a really profound thought um, whether for better or worse, that day was going to have massive implications for you, your career and your life. Yep. What was going through your head after you walked into the ADAPT office 
and chose to self-refer? So every single misconception about walking into a mental health building uh, was walking, was going through my head at that time, right? I knew I had to convince myself that I needed help. And I say convince myself, right? Because at that moment, you don't really believe that, you know, it's that bad or that you need help. So I had to convince myself that me needing help was more important than my career, which I say that it is absolutely 100%. Getting help and getting healthy is definitely more important than my career or than anybody's career. But at that moment, that is not what I was feeling. So I had to really trick myself into believing that because I really thought like, this is going to ruin my career. This is going to get back to my leadership. They're going to find out that I'm a mean drunk. They're going to redline my, you know, my line number. I'm, everything that I worked for is going to be, um, you know, taken away from me. I was scared. I, and I think the biggest thing that I felt more than anything was shame because when I walked into the ADAPT office, and again, I had to convince myself that I needed help, I realized that everything, excuse me, everything that everybody thought about Sergeant Amaya was fake. So I was a fraud, right? And so I was just, I was ashamed of everything that I had told people, all the the stuff I had been selling everybody like, yeah, go seek help, do this, do that. But until that moment, that's really when I actually did it for myself, you know, the, the truth of seeking help and all that. And so I was just scared, honestly. I think that was the biggest thing that I was feeling was just ashamed and and I didn't want anybody to see me. I was embarrassed that I needed help. I was embarrassed that I wasn't strong enough to cope with things on my own, which again is I think a ridiculous thought now. Um, but definitely I didn't think that back then. And um but that's really it. Scared, shame, you know, embarrassed. So I have to ask this question. How has your journey been? You know, you talk about walking into the ADAPT office and feeling shame, but now you are publicly telling your story to really anyone that's willing to listen. So how has, how has that journey been for, for you, that journey of realization from feeling that shame to, I want to tell my story so that I can help others? Man, um, Honestly, it's uh, a lot of crying, um, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of um, questioning myself and and just my life. Um, I've never I've never been. I, I honestly, I, that's such a that's such a tough question. It, the journey's been amazing. And I think we talked about this before in the pre-interview. I wouldn't change it for the world because I have my whole life ahead of me, right? And I have my two beautiful kids who I'm better for and everything now. But it's been a roller coaster of emotions. It's been a, a scary ride to a, you know, a happy ride to a depressed ride, um, back to scary and all that. But honestly, I, I have to look back and and I think this was one of the questions that we had talked about before. I see the positive in everything. So it's hard for me now, you know, as I am today to look back and say anything negative about this journey, because although I would never want to go through that again in my life right now, 
it's definitely made me such a better person. Um, I'm able to, to care for my children and my, you know, significant other in such a way that I wouldn't have been able to do before because I was selfish and self-centered back then. And, and, you know, the world was crumbling around me. So it's about me. And now I realize that it's okay to be weak. It's okay to let people love you. It's okay to let people care for you. So that's a really tough question for me because like I said, the journey, I have nothing but positive things to say about it because I just kind of look at like the end of it. But again, right, it is it is one of those things where I have to look back in my career and just let you know that Master Sergeant Amaya today, I feel like I can genuinely connect with somebody who is in the dumps because they look at me and all that I ever hear still is right. You have it so together. What? But I really don't. I've even today, like I don't have it together today. <laughs> you know, I'm still working. I'm still learning. I'm still growing, which is nuts to say, cause I've been in for 14 years. I am a master sergeant. People look at you so differently. I think back to when I was a young airman, what I looked at a master sergeant, you know, as, and I was like, Whoa, they've got it so figured out. But I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't want to speak on behalf of other senior NCOs, but I don't have it all figured out. Um, but I feel like it's a genuine thing where I can, when somebody tells me like, hey, Sarnamaya, I'm having a hard time because I'm having problems in my relationship. I can sit down with them and really be like, hey, let's talk about this because we all go through this. And so that's what that journey has been like for me, just really learning self-realization of the positive in life and everything like that. And it's been an amazing one, um, although at sometimes it was a very sad one, but definitely amazing nonetheless. So how have these experiences uh, shaped the way that you look at the decisions that you make on a daily basis? Um, I now, I now, every time that I'm going to say something, do something, send an email or something, you know, that I believe is might get crazier, might get me in trouble in any way. Um, I always ask myself, not if my boss were to find out or not if my commander were to find out but when they find out and so that's how i make decisions now just knowing that everything that i do is going to come to light and so i make decisions based on that right i don't want to do anything that's going to jeopardize i value my career a lot more especially after that article scene and after this you know um journey so i me valuing my career more now than i did before um shapes those decisions that way, right? I always just make sure that anything that I do, can I get in trouble for it? You know, can it be misconstrued in any way to get me in trouble, me or my people in trouble? And then in my relationship, I actually just obnoxiously over, over, like over communicate everything, you know, Hey, how are you feeling? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, this is how I'm feeling. And then, so I've also learned that, right. How to, how to just be a better, better person as a mother and as a, as a girlfriend or whatever it is. Wow, that's awesome. So I guess my final question for this interview is if you could, you know, look into the eyes of someone that is in the same situation that Airman Amaya was in, you know, coming up on 12 years ago, somewhere around there, what would be your advice to them? I would tell them that it is not that bad. And when they ask me what it is, I can tell them everything, you know, everything. It's not that bad. It's really not. Um, there's always an answer to everything. I think you just have to sit down and take the time to find it. 
Um, perseverance is probably one of the best qualities for us as humans to practice. And that would be that, right? Just let them know, like, it's not that bad. It, your relationship, your heartbreak, your money problems, your, you know, depression, whatever it is that you, it, insert problem here. It's not that bad. And I think once you sit down and you can tell yourself that and you can start looking at the positive things, no matter how little they may be in that situation, um, you can dig yourself out of that hole and and really start looking at the good things in life. You know, again, no matter how little it is. So that would be it, though. It's not that bad. Nadia, thank you. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for, you know, putting yourself out there. I think it takes a lot of bravery to be willing to to speak about your personal life. Um, especially in the midst of recovery and whatnot. So thank you for being brave enough to let others learn from your experience. And thanks for being on the show. No, thank you for having me. I hope this week's episode has connected with you in some way. It may be giving you a better understanding of the far reaching impacts that addiction can have on service members, their families, and their careers. But I hope that you understand that recovery is a process and that seeking help doesn't have to be detrimental to your career. If you'd like to be on the show, feel free to email us at resilientaf.mail at gmail.com or hit us up on the Resilient AF Facebook page. As always, I hope that this episode has reached you and provided value. Have a blessed day.